Hello, my name is Lawrence Woodruff, and I am a monolingual English speaker. And I'm Michael Ralph, and I am a monolingual English speaker. Professional development requires ongoing reflection and dialogue. So join us as we spend our Saturday discussing education research and drinking beer. Today we are drinking Le Trat Quadruple from the De Konenshoven Brewery in the Netherlands. And this one comes in what amounts a wine bottle. Yeah, I don't know if we're going to get the popping sound of opening the container because we are uncorking. Yeah, so I believe this is our first uncorking on our podcast. I like enjoying the little bit of mist when you first open a, a corked vessel. Yeah, had that mist. Smells great. It smells sweet. It doesn't smell like those bitter heads we've been pouring. It comes out more amber than the last couple that we've had. Yeah, amber was a, a really good call on this. It smells really good. I know that I've been saying every month I'm so excited to drink this, but like I am so excited to drink this. Well, cheers. Cheers. What are we doing today, Dr. Ralph? Researchers measured the impact of student-directed project weeks on their sense of motivation over the course of a school year. We reflect on the importance of consistently prioritizing learner agency throughout the year rather than sequestering it to a single week of freedom. Later, we read a review of research on learning math in bilingual settings. Their paper emphasizes the influence of the teaching language on learner processing and the importance of someone's multilingual schema as they process mathematical concepts. Let's get started. For our first segment, we read, Does Changing Learning Environments Affect Student Motivation? This was written by Sabine Schwedar and Diana Rothfelder. Published in Learning and Instruction in 2024. This paper examined the impact of changing the center of instruction, teacher versus student, on student motivation using the self-determination theory as a framework. Researchers collected and analyzed data on the impact of self-directed learning and teacher-directed instruction on student motivation, arguing autonomy-supportive instruction positively influenced student motivation. Yeah, this uh, thematically, this paper uh, included a lot of things that I th that I think both of us really like to like reading about, to like thinking about, to like, we like trying to apply these in, in classrooms or learning environments or learning situations. Self-determination theory is sort of a, one of the, the cornerstones upon which this paper is sort of situated. And, you know, the ideas of promoting student competency, belonging, and um, uh, agency, autonomous, autonomy is uh, something that we have thought about in classrooms for a long time. So for their study, they worked with six schools over the course of an entire school year and something about the way that those schools approached instruction, you know, at the broadest level meant that they had these one week long, like project weeks. And so they were studying how those project weeks, which were much more student directed, they emphasized student autonomy a lot more in, in those particular weeks of learning compared to a pretty teacher centric 
curriculum structure for the rest of the time in that semester. And so they were looking at how that um, that week of more student directed learning influenced student motivation and motivation, particularly within self-determination theory, which means how much did they feel um, agency? How much did they feel connected with their peers? How much did they feel competent at what they were doing? And so they were saying, do these weeks of projects improve student motivation as we understand it in this overall theory? And by yeah, so they, they gave the kids surveys and asked them how they felt about those things. And they gave those surveys periodically through the year. Yeah, the, they took four measurements. Uh, they, they measured student motivation like right before they started Project Week after a substantial period of teacher-directed time. They measured student motivation near the end of that Project Week. So on day four of five, uh, they, they took their measurements of motivation again. And then there's this big gap as you turn over semesters and they do a whole bunch more of like the teacher directed instruction. And then they took their third measurement right before the second semester project week. And then they took their fourth measurement at the end of the second semester project week. And they looked at those four measurement moments to see how do those two project weeks, how does their motivation compare to their motivation in the teacher directed instructional time right before it? For the most part, I don't think anyone's going to be surprised with these results. Uh, students felt good uh, about um, about their motivation or motivation. What's the word? Motivation um, quality. I think is is the uh, is the phrase that they used. Intrinsic motivation versus extrinsic motivation during the individual project weeks. Self or student directed project weeks motivation throughout the school year improved. It seemed to have sort of spikes during the the um, the group project times. You called them spikes, uh, where there are these spikes in intrinsic motivation, which is the motivation that we feel inside ourselves. We want to get better at something because we have a passion for it, or we're curious about it. I'm not doing it for you. I'm doing it for me. I'm intrinsically motivated, and we saw those measures go way up during uh, during the project weeks. And we saw the measures of extrinsic motivation. So I'm doing something to get paid. I'm doing something to get a grade. I'm doing something so you like me. Uh, those are out external factors that make me want to do something. Those went down during the project week by a considerable margin unto yeah. themselves. Those measurements basically go very nearly back to where they were in the third measurement. So we finish our project work yeah. And then we come back second semester and say, hey, where are you at now? And there's a, it's, they called it statistically significant, and I believe them, but a pretty modest from an effect size standpoint increase, but most of that spike is gone yeah. by the third time point. They talked about how there were, these project we could contribute to increases in motivation. And for me, the huge takeaway was a project week isn't good enough. Well, they did say that at the end. They said um, that the um, if the, we are looking for an ideal ratio of uh, teacher-directed instruction and student-directed instruction, and this this isn't it, and we don't know what it is. Yeah. So we need we need to look more at this because I mean I don't think they say because if it's so good when they're doing self-directed why aren't we doing that all the time they didn't write that into their conclusion but they like the suggest I mean the takeaway the implication is yeah. that we need to maybe have more of these 
I made a note very early on about dosage, like a one week, you know, random act of science, right? We taught science. I used to teach science. You still do. The, this random act of project feels great and that's in their data, but it's ability to make long-term impacts. I, I can't help but wonder what would these same four measurements look like for a class that does not have any project week? Because I suspect there is some nominal amount of growth over time just as they get older. Yeah. A control a c- control would have been nice. Yeah. And and I also would really like to see a time point five measurement. I wish they would have taken one more measurement at the end of the school year yeah. to see how much of that time for second spike. Does it also come way back down? Does it can't come back down to the same level or does it start to, is there some more persistent effect on the trait on the trait? Um, because I would imagine, as I think about what I would do to apply this in my classroom, I want to see more intrinsic motivation that is stable long-term. I want to develop lifelong learners. If we want to have impact to cultivate student motivation long-term, I think this is a really good this is a really good argument for there's something about project weeks and student agency and student control over what they're doing but we need a larger dosage. We, you can't have this like large scale shift from the teachers in charge, teachers directed, doing a scripted curriculum, which is all what they said in their, in their materials early on. They talked about a largely scripted, uh, high, highly prescriptive curriculum where teachers are, teachers are in charge, teachers are, I, I inferred teachers are largely being told what they need to be teaching in the classroom outside of that project week. And so then to do this, you know, this hard pivot into student-directed learning, there's perhaps some relief in, great, I have some control, which is contributing to some of these spikes. But if we're wanting to cultivate that motivation long-term, you can't have, you can't be of two minds. Like, you've got to be philosophically coherent. Yeah, of two minds is an interesting um, perspective. This model, right, the, uh, the how do we say it, we're going to binge on autonomy and then it's going to go away. Uh, there might be other more moderate models. I remember when I came to my current school, this is my 12th year, so this would have been 12 years ago, um, the college biology instructor, who also hired you, I believe, mm-hmm. uh, Paula Donham, mm-hmm. she had uh, an independent project Fridays every week. Uh, I remember Daniel Pink's drive was big at the time. And though I never read it, it was, it was the, the buzz talk of the, uh, the science department for about two or three years. And so she gave them those, she had a regular teacher directed instruction four days of the week. And then on Friday, they were given essentially independent project time to choose some topic in science to develop a presentation. And that continued for the entire semester. And then in about the last month of school or so, the Friday time was rescheduled for the students to present their projects. And the thing is, is the qual like there, there was not a format for what the presentation looked like. So some of them were models that students built. Some of them were PowerPoint presentations that were lectures on the topic that they released. Some of them were written work. Some of them were diagrams that they, that they, you know, infographics that they created. Uh, There was a wide variety of experiences. Some worked independently, some worked in groups. She didn't even, she didn't even assign that type of it. They each, they clumped together as their interests aligned or worked individually as was appropriate to their needs. So uh, that was something that continued over the course of a semester. 
and uh, so that's clearly more than five days work of project, right? So if we've got four months of, or th yeah, four months of school in a semester or so, that's 20 days of like calendar time devoted to it, but it's calendar time that's recurring. And so they get to have this boost on Fridays. Oh yeah, I get, I get to make choices and do my own thing and develop my own skills. And so we get the, the reminder of that more frequently. Would that model, like what what would these measurements be if we had been employing that model and would they be higher and would the slope be higher over the course of the semester uh would it just have a higher baseline the entire time what would that look like that would be an interesting and i think to your point having also seen that playing out i did read drive and even though i've fallen out of love daniel pink out of love with daniel pink since then i still think it's a decent book and knowing the realities of how those, she literally called them Pink Fridays, which having the Barbie movie coming out recently, it's got a little different valence in 2023. <laughs> um, I think she would have endorsed and enjoyed. And uh, and knowing the way that those those projects played out over the semester, they're not confined to the, that hour once a week. They're right. pondering, what should I do? They're coming in for help on Wednesday after school. I mean, like, I've got this queued up. Like, if I'm going to be ready for Friday, I need to get this thing in place. Or I need to get this help right now so I can make the most of my pink day on Friday. And I think that more pervasive, that more long-term, I'm going to say the word again, dosage of access to thinking about and leveraging their agency, I think is really important to to invoke a make it stick idea now since we're just making you know a who didn't start the fire of popular literature the mass practice doesn't work and i feel like a mass practice of agency is just as ineffective as a mass practice of any content strategy that's a really insightful connection i like that yeah eating you're not going to meaningfully change your lifestyle cholesterol by eating nothing but salads for a week. And so the, it's not to say that this, this, there's anything necessarily wrong with this particular study, but my takeaway I think is different than the way that I understood the words as they were written. Um, that this is largely demonstrating the power of student agency and the inadequacy of only doing it once a, once a week or only doing it for a week once a semester that it's got to be more integrated into the rest of what you do. Because if everything else that you do, you, me, anybody does for all the other days of the semester is highly teacher-centered, that's not going to work. And I think even from a even from a more like quality of what you get in that week, if you're all you're doing is practicing one set of skills and you try to do a completely different skill set for a week, like your ability to get value out of that week is not very high anyway. You're, you're learning what it means to be in a more autonomous environment for a lot of that time period. It makes me think of when I, I taught honors biology just at the tail end of my time at in high school. And a part of that assignment, I was compelled to have a student project as a part of my curriculum. I actively didn't want it, but that was a district expectation to which I yielded. And seeing the way that the students engaged that work within the context of the rest of what we did further convinced me how important it is that these kind of projects weeks, which to be clear, I think are great. Like I think student projects are awesome, but our ability to engage that project work and develop the skills of and provide opportunities for connecting freely, fully autonomous, open inquiry is a word I'm going to use 
in those student projects back to what I'll call the day-to-day curriculum, right? It has to be able to come up in everything else that we're doing. If they are entirely siloed, we're going to get back to this spike and gone scenario. Whereas the more connections we can build to everything else that we do, I think that gives us an opportunity to influence that the trait-like value, which is what the authors described as this thing that doesn't, doesn't change by just one moment. We have to change it by repeated practice, repeated exposure, a philosophical commitment to agency, autonomy, connectedness, competency over the long term so we can make substantive durable changes that might influence uh, the way students think about our content for you know some longer period of time. You know, um, gosh, I'm just musing now. Uh, I devote one day a week to Mental Health Mondays in my classroom. It's pretty popular. Kids like it. I think kids that don't, who would not otherwise take college biology, take college biology because I have Mental Health Mondays in it, which has generated challenges for me that I didn't anticipate, but that's okay. Let's play the game that we're in as opposed to the game we expected to play. So, um, that's happening and that's fine. That's great. Um, but I, I know that I have some students who are not into Mental Health Monday. They are a minority of students, but they're not into it. And I have other students who I feel like I underserve because I know that their capacity to like delve into science topics is not really being met by, by what I'm providing them. And this one of the things that they talked about in this paper as part of those, you know, uh, self-determination theory is that, you know, having agency and choice and input makes a difference for a classroom. Even if things don't necessarily go the way that the students are communicating, they they have an actual voice that's being measured and, and heard and considered uh, value, valuably uh, is, is a powerful thing. So, like, I've got... I've got four sections. They don't all have to have the same quote bonus day. Like I could have some classes that say, you know what? We love mental health Monday. Let's do it. And I have other classes that say, you know what? We'd rather have a long-term semester project to replace one of our tests. And we would like to work on that instead uh, or, or in addition to, or something of that nature. And I would not have to change my curricular map to do that. If, if the students like, you know what? we, we didn't appreciate Mental Health Monday for a semester. We'd actually rather do something else with that time. I could easily see myself, I could see myself reappropriating that time and say, okay, then last, we're going to hear projects for in May. And that means you're going to be working on them every Monday from here on till then. And what I need you to do is contextualize our curriculum within your project. It could be about drug overdoses. That's fine. Tell me what you know about pro- pro- how does protein structure, how is that relevant for drug overdoses? How How is our core content relevant to your project? And then pick any project where you can do that. I could easily see myself and my classes really enjoying that. That's the heart of what I think my original comment was about was, yeah. and what works about Mental Health Monday is what I say regularly, we declare our priorities with our time. Yeah. And so Mental Health Monday works because it is a priority for you and you prove it by giving up 20% of your school year to have that conversation. 
And the moment you start subdividing it, yeah, you're showing that it's not actually the same exactly. level of priority. Exactly. And I think that's the same kind of critique that I'm making here. You can't cram in agency in a week if you're saying your agency doesn't matter the other 51 weeks of the year. Or 50 weeks, they do it twice. Yeah. And so the they are different things. I think because I was nodding along to most of what you were saying. And there are different things to have a conversation with a class where we say, we have been in relationship for a while. We know each other. Let's have a conversation if Mental Health Mondays aren't landing. Because I want to demonstrate a commitment to responsiveness and a commitment to providing what you need. And if this isn't it, I'm prepared to hear it and make changes because I'm, I'm not a prisoner of my own system. Yeah. And that is a different thing than starting to try to apportion out like, yeah. can we do mental health Mondays, but like in half the time, that's a different thing. Yeah. And like the difference is subtle. Uh, and parsing them is part of your job. Like yeah. you'll, you'll, you'll work on, you're already, we're listening to you work on it. <laughs> yeah, you are, you are. Uh, but knowing that they are different is important. Like portioning them out is not it. Being responsive to the needs of a specific class who wants to prioritize other things is a, they're, they're different. And these kids are in this, a lot of the kids that are in this class because of this hook so like this year isn't the year to change it either uh but being aware that there will be years where there's gonna there's gonna be a time where there might be the right thing to do to change it so empower each other For our second segment, we read Arithmetic in the Bilingual Brain, Language of Learning and Language Experience Effects on Simple Arithmetic in Children and Adults. This was written by Vanessa Serda and Nicole Wicca. This was published in Mind, Brain, and Education, and this is an early view that I am noting as 2023. Who knows when it'll come out? This paper explores the relationship between bilingualism and arithmetic processing, discussing the effects of language experience on arithmetic performance and memory in children and adults. It suggests that bilingualism presents many advantages that outweigh any potential challenges of managing two languages for learning and calls for increased collaboration between bilingualism, math cognition, and education research. When I saw this was cute, I was, I was excited because I, as, as an avid teacher, I have several uh, bilingual students. I have, I have polylingual students. Um, I've got a kid from Algeria who I think speaks five. So like we got, I got multilingual students in my classroom and guess what? They're learning math. Uh, so this is relevant. And you know what else? They're not coming to me for math help. You know what they're coming to me for? They're coming and it makes so this paper crystallizes the struggle and the experiences that my avid kids are having. Because I now fully understand why they're coming to me for chemistry help. Because chemistry is word problems in a different language. The triple coding model is amazing and I'm so happy I know yeah, about it. Yeah, I did too. It was, anyway, yeah. uh, I'm, okay, like in terms of applicability, I don't know what I'm going to do with this information yet. I'm, it needs to stew, I'm sure. But uh, I'm happy that I read it. Uh, this is a more conceptual paper. It's not an empirical paper. It's I think it, I think we can call it a review, although it's not really it's not a meta analysis. It didn't provide any, any effect sizes. They're just saying here is the current literature on bilingualism and 
uh, mathematical learning or mathematical concepts. But even that, it's so underdeveloped in research with adolescents that most of the research they discuss is with adults. Yeah. And just as an aside, this was a great opportunity. I, Cameron um, was, I, I did all of my reading with, with my children this morning, which is not typical. And we were, doesn't matter. There was a reason that Cameron was with me. And I was like, we read a couple of her books. I was like, I gotta go back to reading. You want to know what I'm reading? And she's like, sure. So I read the abstract, like a children's book to my five-year-old, which was fun. I, I just like doing that. <laughs> and uh, we we're like, what is bilingualism? And I had an amazing conversation with Cameron about the different language. Like, what does it mean to speak different languages? What languages do you speak? How much do you speak them? She's like, yeah, I'm, I speak English and I can, I can talk with my hands and I can speak Spanish. And I said, okay, how much can you speak sign language and how much can you speak Spanish? Like, are you, are, are you, are you monolingual or like not gatekeeping the use of that term, but helping her think about how much she can actually speak those things and what she actually knows. So I learned a lot from reading this paper uh, because it formalized for me a way to think about mathematics as a language unto itself that we access through our experience in the world and through language. And a lot of the studies that they were referencing as they kind of unpacked, and it's a, it's a fairly brief read. A lot of the studies that they unpacked were showing when we're accessing math through language, it's influenced by our comfort, our experience, our familiarity with the language and then when we access math through symbolism and shape and numerical representation, that it doesn't have the same kind of influence as when we're accessing it through language. Yeah, the transition to word problem is real. It is a different cognitive process. I think that's, that's like, I you know, the... I don't know. I don't even know how much time. I don't know how much airtime we've given to the the phrase "the curse of knowing" on this podcast. But uh, for those of us that are math, have have math fluency, uh, and it's hard to say math mastery because that that's going to change depending on what level you think about math. But if you have got math fluency, you might not consider. You, you might consider a problem presented in words and a problem presented as symbol as the same and it's fine and it doesn't matter. Like the, there's more words, so it takes longer to read it. But when you get to the end of the paragraph, you know what they're asking and you can do the, the operations. Um, that's taking for granted translations between language systems that our learners can't take for granted. Mm-hmm. And so I think the simplest version of one of the key takeaways for me was a a number of studies that showed there is a difference between if I ask you, tell me what four means. But if I print that as the numeral four, you will encounter that question differently than if I write out the English word F-O-U-R-E four, because I could also write that as quattro. So one of the simplest examples is let's imagine that I ask you to tell me about the number four. And you will encounter that differently depending on whether I print that as a written instruction with the numeral four 
or I ask you to tell me about the number four and I write it F-O-U-R. Or if you say it out loud. Yeah. Because I could also print that as quattro. Or cat. Uh, so we made it, we acknowledge in the opening that uh, we are both monolingual. So I had a year of French and I spent a little over about a year and a half studying Spanish. So my positionality in thinking about early language development is as an adolescent learning French and an adult learning Spanish, neither of which I've mastered or I would call neither of which I would call myself fluent. And for those of you who may care about my history, uh, I took a year of French in middle school, which was not acknowledged for my high school. So I took a year of French again in high school, which was not acknowledged for my college. So then I took a year of French again in college. So I have first year French three times. And so in those contexts, processing in the mathematical language for the, is what I'm calling it, compared to having to go through your particular linguistic mastery, whatever that might be, are largely, they, they are different things. And they influence the amount of cognitive resources you have to marshal towards the mathematical work. And there's a number of empirical studies in this paper that they're citing showing that, that is, that's real. That's a real thing. It is a real thing. Uh, they do. They talk about brain scans and what parts of the, the the brain are active, and linguistic centers and math centers, and overlapping, and 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 that they're kind of the same centers, and the symbolic representation of truths and communication is the same. So the math is a different language when it's represented symbolically, but then you there's this like Venn diagram overlap of representing representing the the language uh, linguistically. Uh, I've literally made a Venn diagram in my notes. So, so the, it, it becomes complicated when you have multiple, it's not just two, it's three. You've got the mathematic symbolism, you have Spanish and you have French. And all three of those have some overlap, but then you've got to move between them to solve the problem. Um, it was fascinating. It's fascinating, but... From the lens of a classroom teacher, I don't, first of all, I don't teach math aside from the math that I need to teach the science that I teach. As a support for science, I teach math. Um, and I don't teach language aside from the fact that tier three vocabulary in science is like a language unto itself. Uh, but I don't teach multiple overlapping languages. Uh, however, and so because that's true, because I don't, there's some practicality concerns that I have. It's like, what do I take away as a practitioner from this paper? And really, for me, there was really, I appreciate the understanding. It helps me understand my students better, which is going to have benefits that I can't predict that I'm going to leverage in the future. But really, there was a place in the paper, and if I were good at podcasting, I would uh, hi have highlighted it and referenced it and know specifically what I'm talking about. But there was some reference in the paper that was essentially one of my favorite procedural uh, ideologies. Uh, uh, train how you fight. If you're going to be assessed in English, practice in English. If you're going to be assessed in Spanish, practice in Spanish. And that is my, um, as an avid teacher of bilingual learners of, of, of math, that's my practical takeaway. 
And that doesn't really change my practice much because I was ignorantly operating in the only language that I know. But uh, there's a lot of complication in this paper and there is a lot of nuance and there is a lot of if-thens and there's there's a lot of um, like... How, how balanced are they and proficient are they in the two languages? How complicated is the math? There are a lot of factors that tweak the outcomes a little bit. So we could situationally, case by case, like review each circumstance and come to an optimized answer. But generally, train how you fight. Well, and I think to extend on that, because that is definitely empirically justified. But that comes with the assumption that you will fight in English. And I think like you and I are both monolingual, so I can't, I can't evaluate a student in Spanish currently, but I think especially with the role of symbolic math being something that is distinct unto itself, I think that we can own, especially folks who are working on math, like especially folks who have math objectives crystallized as a part of their course. I can imagine a world where I can I can identify specific standards or specific assessment items where we can represent them symbolically and you can you can put whatever language around them you need because I'm evaluating the symbolic language the Arabic numerals that you and I can both understand. If our goal is to develop competency on the on the content on the topics and if I don't need access, or I can, I can, I can obtain access after the fact. I can work with somebody who translates for me as a monolinguistic, monolinguistic evaluator after the fact. But imposing the expectation that somebody has to translanguage, somebody has to translate the prompts that I give before they do all the math, and then retranslate for me back after the fact. If I want to evaluate their math competency. Those two barriers are real. And so if I really want to know what they can do and what they know in a mathematical context, there are scenarios where I need to deal with my barriers to understand what they're doing in a language I don't understand. And that was one of the things that I, one of the many things I liked about this paper was the breadth of monolingual studies that they included in their work. Yeah. They they were referencing a lot of studies across a lot of languages. They it were. was not situated only in English. No. Not not to English, not from English. It was a lot of different studies. So this is not something specific to English as either the output or input for this study. This is truly something that was well represented across a lot of languages around the world. Yeah, it was Definitely a global paper. Yeah, and that I, I liked. I really, and they call it out consistently. Like it was easy to understand how they were looking at lots of different language combinations. And and like, uh, if I were an elementary school teacher, I might be more invested in this paper because it talks about certain factors at a very for very young students uh, that are early in their language acquisition that. Like we, it talks about balanced bilingual students having different outcomes than students that have a clearly dominant uh, primary language, and and so if I was an elementary school 
teacher, there might be differences in how I approach whether they have a strong primary school and a develop, I mean, a strong primary language and a, and a developing secondary language that, and I'm teaching math as an objective. Like there are some, some of the nuances that I kind of brushed over earlier matter uh, in, in ways that might not matter in my own uh, collegiate biology or maybe even depending on the class ninth grade biology context. But for, for, or for, for some of the younger kids here, uh, there, there, there are some situations that you encounter where uh, you might make different choices. Uh, and so the paper is definitely worth a read for, for practitioners of bilingual students. Um, if, if you teach math to bilingual students, you should read this paper. That's my takeaway. Um, I don't, teach math to bilingual students. I help bilingual students do their math homework and I only speak English. So my choices are limited. But I think, I think you do have a choice. Their, their invocation of the triple code model, I think is important. Whether or not I present mathematics through the lens of English or through symbolic mathematics or representations of mathematics. That's a choice you can make. You do speak both of those languages. I could, I speak all three of them. Yeah. I could, we could graphically represent the information. We could linguistically represent it in English and we could Arabically represent it in numerals. I can do that. I could, I should do all three. And even rolling all the way back to, I don't know, deep cut first season if we go all the way back to some of those fMRI studies, we should do we should not can do all of them. We should do all of them to yeah. activate multiple regions of the brain, which is a section in this paper that shows that different regions of the brain are activated depending on the representation. So if we want that mathematics knowledge to be durable, we should lean into representation across all of these media, all of these languages. So that our students can both become more fluent in talking about mathematics and have a deeper understanding of mathematics as a language unto itself. Know your students. How was the beer? The beer was great. I really like Amber's. Uh, the only critique that I have is I think I'd rather have a triple than a quadruple, but the, the strength of the sweetness and the alcohol tinge, I think overpowers a little bit the flavors of the beer. Agreed. And so I think that I would enjoy the beer itself a little more if it was toned down just a little bit. It's, um, it's a 10 percenter and As I've come to understand through this journey through Trappists, which are very not, I mean, they're somewhat minimalist compared to the fancy schmancy stuff we usually try to get. And um, because they're so minimalist, the taste profile is small and the alcohol in this case really does overpower everything else. Um, It's got a fizzy head like a soda when you do an aggressive pour and it smells sweet. Uh, but it's very clean and it's easy to drink. It's light, it's smooth, but it's mild, mild, mild. The strongest thing that I can say about its taste is that it has a tangy finish, but it 
All I can say about the, that tangy finish is that it's tangy. I can't even tell you what it tastes like. It's just a little bit tangy. There's this faint acidity at the very beginning, but it, it dissipates immediately. Like it's almost like it's not even an acid taste. It's just an acid anticipation that then doesn't go anywhere. And and so that's an interesting way to say I, I really enjoyed drinking this. I feel myself affected by the drink to a considerable margin. I would absolutely drink another one if you had it. And yet there's not a lot of flavor complexity that I can identify. It's mostly just pleasant, easy to drink. It's right in the style of beer that I enjoy. It's a high alcohol content. And most of what I'm aware of is the high alcohol content. I don't have any negative things to say about this beer, but I don't have a ton of positive things to say about this beer, except that it is highly effective and very easy to drink. Which feels like if you were going to, if you were an Abbey brewing a beer 600 years ago and needed to make something, the fewest notes possible that gets you drunk seems like what is probably, that's probably the highest survival probability. Thank you for that set, Mr. Ralph, because I have things to say about the De Koningshoven Brewery. First of all, I do not I did not name check that, so my pronunciation is probably terrible. But this is the rogue of the Trappist Abbeys. It was established in 1884, but in 1996, it licensed the operation of the of the brewery part of the abbey to the Artois brewery company and then the artois brewery company established additional corporate identities in 1980 and they started making profits off of this thing they are breaking the rules now i don't know how i i I, the catholic church is not known for the speed of its bureaucracy so in 1999 they were decommissioned as not trappists since four uh, 20 or 19 years, they were making profit. But in 2005, they came back to the fold where it re- resumed monk operation. And to this day, it is still, uh, th- there are no exterior cor- corporate influence. It's a monastery of monks brewing beer and selling it within the Trappist fold. So thanks for listening, everybody. This has been another month. This is Better Together. Remember, we are on twopintplc.com. So please jump on, give us comment. Let us know what you want us to read, what you want us to comment, what you think about the discussion of the papers that we have on here. And we are now on Spotify, so let me know if we could do anything else to be on the services where you find podcasts, because this really is better as one community all getting better together. We will see you next month. As we pursue growth, discuss research, and struggle well.